Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I welcome Dr. Jean Druon, founder and CEO of Clarify Health Solutions, a company helping payers, providers, and life sciences companies deliver better care, therapies, and outcomes by delivering the most actionable patient journey insights and value-based payment platform. Dr. Juan and I discuss why fee-for-service and actionable data can lead the healthcare system towards value-based care, the importance of building a system to understand every patient journey, and what baseball can teach us about optimizing value-based arrangements. Enjoy. Dr. Jean Druan, CEO and co-founder of Clarify. Thanks for joining me today. Joe, pleasure to join you. I'd love to start off by hearing a bit more about Clarify and what you all do. Great. So the foundational premise of Clarify, much like many healthcare companies, is yes, healthcare is broken. We don't get the experience we want. Um, there's inefficiencies, et cetera. The way we're coming at the problem is that fundamentally we believe that the reason we're stuck in a rut in healthcare is that uh, we've been stuck with fee-for-service payment models. And given your background, uh, you'll well know that fee-for-service, which came into being in the middle of the past century, was pretty good at paying for healthcare between, say, 1950 and 1980 when the way in which people presented with disease was they would come to a hospital and a hospital was generally where you went to die. But with the massive advances in technology in the last 50 years, uh, we now have massively extended lifespan and uh, we can keep people going for quite a while with multiple comorbidities. And so the challenge of the current healthcare system is not treating one thing, it's uh, treating chronic disease and for, for quite a while. As a result of it, the payment models that we have aren't adapted to the reality that we need today because today, success in the health system is all about better managing patient journeys with teams of clinicians, ideally working in concert. And yet we have a payment model that treats everyone as their own individual actor uh, and doesn't in and of itself encourage people to collaborate. So yes, there have been all of these attempts at value-based care, bundles, ACOs, et cetera. And right. you know, those attempts have failed to scale, right? Here's the thing is we believe that one of the fundamental reasons that they have failed to scale is that two things. One is the system is incredibly used to fee-for-service, so it would be easier to reform the system if we could, in fact, make fee-for-service something that delivers value. The second is we believe that's possible if you had precise enough insights to say to a clinician, hey, for an individual who's a member of a given cohort, if you did these things, good things will happen. And you can then assess whether the clinician has done the right things or not and reward them, bonus them based on having 
done those things. So if you wanted to, you could call that developing a system of what's the next best action and rewarding people on that or saying, hey, instead of having bureaucratic care gaps like Medicare Advantage, we're now going to have smart care gaps and we're going to bonus based on those. So where we're headed is to be the Switzerland objective platform that sits between payers and providers, loads in these new actionable value-based arrangements, and with a baseline in and a baseline out, we assess um, how things were done and um, you know help to reward clinicians on that basis. And capitalize on data availability and insights to do that. Data is like really the the coin of the realm, it sounds like. Yeah, 100%. So there's a couple of things that are really uh, important here. One of them, to your point, is using data and the capability that comes with cloud-based machine learning and AI to be much more precise to say, Mary has just come in. Mary has these needs. If we target our interventions to those needs, and you'll know as a former clinician that part of the way we were trained is to order 10 tests so that the three that come back, that there was, <laughs> yeah. Right. So hopefully you get out of some of that. And then here's the other thing, is part of the challenge with existing attempts at value-based arrangements is that often it said, hey, uh, clinician, do good things, and maybe you'll get some sort of share of something at the end of the year. Right. What we haven't done is used behavioral science and incentives to say, well, wait a sec. What if instead you said, hey, you have done good things for this particular, for Mary today. And as a result of that, your reward appears in your bank account mm. at the end of the day. Right? So... Uh, and that's something that just hasn't been deployed in healthcare before and is completely doable now. So how does that look in practice? This is real example. Orthopedic surgeons in a big metro area uh, in the south of the U.S., and these were um, affiliated docs. They were not employed. And it turns out if for total joint replacements, and as a surgeon, you'll be well aware of this, uh, there's a certain proportion of patients that don't need to be operated on inpatient. They could be done in an ASC, an ambulatory right. surgery center. And it's obviously far cheaper. And also you could argue higher quality, less risk of reinfection, et cetera, right? So um, imagine a program where a national payer puts up bonus dollars and says, for every surgery that qualifies that you move from inpatient to outpatient will bonus you. So it turned out that in a period of um, six months, a uh, hundred orthopedic surgeons were able to save on the order of $4 million for 500,000 in incentives. So it's an 8X um, factor. So you look at that example and you say, huh, are there other such things that we know are good things to do across different specialties that we could bonus in the same way? Uh, so selecting the right drugs in oncology pathways, 
not ordering 12 lead EKGs and outpatient cardiology, et cetera. Um, and that's where the power of the data comes from today is being able to identify these smarter metrics uh, that ultimately you can still pay fee for service on. And yet when those things are done, it's net positive to the system. Yeah, that's a really powerful example of breaking out of the perception that this is only a um, get rich slow scheme in value-based care. Like there's no way to, to, to actually <laughs> uh, recoup the value that you're bringing into the system in a timely manner in a way that allows you to make payroll or cover your overhead or whatever the other things that, that all the physicians and providers of every stripe are navigating out there. I love your phrase, get rich. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, as you know, I, I remember talking to a surgeon six or seven years ago who said, yeah, you know what I do with the report that comes back with data from nine months ago that says that nine months ago, I should have done something differently. It goes straight to the garbage. Right. Whereas if you, and by the way, this is not unique to clinicians. Um, it's just about being a human being. Right. Which is if you can get immediate feedback, immediate reward, um, you create a much stronger um, learning uh, and execution loop. What about your own background? Like what, you know, this is not, I know from my own personal experience, like this is not a field for the faint of heart uh, in, in wading into the, whatever the processes are in, in value-based care, even though I think there are tailwinds now out in the, the marketplace for this. But, you know, how did you, you know, what's your unique positioning for this? Sure. So like you, I went to uh, medical school. Uh, I ultimately decided to go to business school and um, ended up back at McKinsey where I'd been before medical school. Now, my thought at the time was that I would do two years, get my loans paid off and head into biotech. And why biotech? Because uh, I just had this fear of going towards the delivery side of healthcare because um yeah, it's been so hard to innovate um, on that side. And then, you know, in life, serendipity strikes. And early on in my McKinsey tenure, I was asked to go to London to help set up the new hospital regulator for England. And it turned into what was supposed to be three months, turned into eight years working very closely with the Blair administration on their reforms of the National Health Service. So at the time, this was 2004 to 2012, they were actively trying to bring in pay-for-value models. Uh, they put their GPs on a form of contracting very similar to Medicare Advantage. Uh, and I had an interesting experience where um, the CEO of the London Health Region said, okay, I'm going to hire a lot of uh, McKinsey. Uh, here's the thing though, is you have to come and work for me full time. So I ended up working for two years as the head of strategy and the budget for the London Health Region. And um, it was an interesting role because think of the system a bit as the size of Kaiser Permanente, 26 hospitals. Um, we had all the social care and primary care budgets. And, and we controlled all of the data. And even though we had all of that, the problem we had at the time was there wasn't the ability to link the data sets and to process it in the way you can today with ML, AI, cloud, et cetera. 
And so even though we wanted to put in place better care plans and better incentives for individual docs, we couldn't do it. And what I realized from that experience is, you know, all the macroeconomists at the London School of Economics were saying the same thing that Uwe Reinhardt and others were saying here, which is 20 to 25% of what's spent on healthcare doesn't drive a better outcome. And I said, yeah, okay, that's awesome, but it's not as if you can, and you know from your government background, spread, you know, magic policy pixie dust in three places and all of a sudden the waste will melt away. Right. The waste in healthcare is the sum product of all of the suboptimal decisions that are layered through every individual patient journey. And if you stack them up at the end of the year, you end up with the 20% waste. If you want to go and get at that waste, you have to figure out how to optimize each and every patient journey. In real time, basically. It, exactly. Yeah. 100%. And you know, it's interesting because the strongest incentive in any market to optimize something is the price signal mm -hmm. and the way you pay for something. And so philosophically, I deeply believe in all of the attempts to bring in value-based payments. It's just that the reality of how you pay also has to take into account that human beings behave in a certain way. And we didn't have good enough and precise enough data uh, to pay in the right way, which is why we had to stick with the fee-for-service system. And look, if I use one other example, it's no secret that people say quietly in the corners today, hey, Medicare Advantage is noble in its structure, and yet closing all these gaps to increase star ratings, yes, it gets people paid more. It hasn't really lowered cost or improved quality. It's not because what people are being asked to do, diabetic foot checks, uh, you know, preventative care, et cetera, are bad things. It's just that if you do them for everyone, whether they need it or not, uh, you're then spending a lot of money on activity on people that don't need that activity. And so spread across the population, the spend isn't valuable. So the premise is build a system effectively that enables the optimization of every and any patient journey. I've seen from working with your team previously that you actually go after value propositions across various players in the space. It's not a clear cut, like this is the person, this is the persona that we go after and we go laser focused there. Although I'm sure you're laser focused at each individual attack point, so to speak, but what's like, talk through some of the different use cases <laughs> here, because it really is diverse. And then as a follow-up to that, like what unifies that? Like what's the unifying principle across those various players? So interestingly, I'll start with the unifying principle. Great question. The unifying principle is that if you can deeply understand, precisely understand, to your point, ideally in real time, a patient journey, you can, from that understanding, solve many of the business problems that the key players in healthcare face. So health insurers, providers, life science companies. How does a provider look at the world? A provider says, I need to employ the best docs. I need to pay them appropriately. I need to give them feedback so they do things 
as well as they can. Interest. Oh, and I need to get patients in the door. I need to grow. If you have intelligence on every patient journey in the country, in that you also know what physicians touch that patient, and you can then flip the cube around your data environment and say, hey, uh, this cardiologist saw 1,200 individuals last year. And compared to other people, that cardiologist performs in a certain way. Now, you know that then clinicians complain, well, every clinician says their patients are different and they're more complex. So what's the industry that has best solved the problem of assessing differentiated human performance? Baseball. Well, if you apply baseball, moneyball analytics to a massive healthcare data set on patient journeys, you can sterilize the problem of case mix and very precisely say, in that geography, that cardiologist for these types of individuals tends to get better outcomes more efficiently and effectively. And you can also say, in that geography, here's where the patients are flowing. So for hospitals, it won't surprise you, we help with referral optimization. We help with understanding your market position. We help with understanding how your rates compare, and we help with understanding how your clinical performance compares to others, which is helpful in value-based arrangements. For payers, other side of the coin, we help them more quickly identify the PCPs and specialists, that the doctors that they should have in-network versus out-of-network. We help them provide information to those doctors on how they perform and how they can improve. Now, where we're going, which is where I was at the very beginning of the podcast, is being that platform that enables the way to pay so that we do the right things and not the un unnecessary things, and that ultimately with these the smarter care gaps, uh, we can get to what was the philosophy of Medicare Advantage, which is uh, better outcomes at lower cost. And lastly, for life sciences, two things. One is more quickly identifying sites with more diverse patients to accelerate clinical trials and address the huge problem of diversity in clinical trials. And then the more traditional helping the brand teams identify prescribers, um, et cetera. That's it. It's the same data set of claims, lab, prescription, and social determinants of health data. And on the social determinants, we think about it like a bank. So we look at all the things that go into a credit score. We look at people's credit card purchasing history. We see the food they buy, et cetera. And we use that to understand both the clinical reality of an individual and their behavioral characteristics that might impact the way they'll progress through their care. As I've learned more about value-based care in my previous life before joining AWS, I was always struck by how the core principles of it were in keeping with the way many of us thought about going into medicine. You know, like it's it's one of those things where you think about practicing medicine, whether you want to or not, like your pediatrician or your small town doctor, um, even though it can be vastly different when you're actually out there doing it. And that the incentive structures that should be baked into value-based care pull you back to that. you know. And so I was really interested as you were talking about the kind of data flows that you pull in for social determinants. Like you can imagine in previous models of how healthcare was delivered in communities, 
people knew those things. Like they sort of had a better sense of those things, but now it's just tough to do at scale unless you have access to the kind of data that you all are bringing at Clarify. So do you feel like you are um, realigning the mission a bit, taking the value-based care, whatever that, whatever trajectory that takes aside from that. And you alluded to this when you were talking about how you work with the provider orgs, they would want that data regardless because it helps them do so many things they want to do anyway. Right. It is. And you know, the, the tricky thing in healthcare is the providers are exhausted post COVID. And the support, the the financial support that they received during the pandemic is now ebbing away. Uh, and they are left with, you know, businesses that often have, you know, two to four percent margins. And even though they have an great desire to want to innovate and use these kinds of insights, uh, it's very challenging for them to be able to sequester the necessary resources to be able to innovate at scale. So what's been interesting for us is in order to, uh, you know, and we're still very much what I jokingly say, a not-for-profit organization, right? It's a great thing that what we're doing is exciting investors to, you know, fund our development. Um, the uh, we we're having like many have uh, in the past to rely on payers because payers are uh, have just vaster scale and they effectively have control of the total dollar in healthcare still right and of course life sciences is where there's significant margin um, as well so you know if we were to talk a little bit about the reality of innovating in healthcare i remember something that bob kocher at venrock said to me 5 or 6 years ago he says hey um incredibly noble what it is you're trying to do which is to provide you know insights to help the entire system as opposed to blank sheet go and just you know build you know a medicare advantage plan or whatever it is right. and um he says, my only advice to you is make sure that your primary customer is either a payer or an employer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, that said, from a mission point of view, and I can share a little story with you. When you see providers use this information, mm -hmm. self-service in an independent way to manifestly improve what they do, it is just a beautiful thing. And so- yeah. Um, this is from a few years ago, but walk into, uh, a hospital, uh, in California and it's the orthopedic surgery group. And, um, the, uh, chief operating officer who's a former, former nurse says, wait a second, you're not going to show them their data unblinded. Are you? And I said, oh, absolutely. That's, that's our philosophy. It's transparency. And so, you know, we show the data and it, reveals that some are doing quite well at total joint surgeries across an entire episode and others have areas to improve and silence in the room. And the silverback gorilla head surgeon, right. laughing, you've been a surgeon, then speaks and, and says, wait a second. So are you showing me that I'm the most effective and efficient surgeon in all of the Southern California region? We said, absolutely. 
And you're also saying that for this sub cohort over here of women over 75 with diabetes and a few other characteristics that I had 20 or so of those in the last year and a half and didn't do so well. And he said, absolutely. And he turns around to the anesthesiologist and says, hey, that pre-op clinic we've been dithering on opening for the last three years, mm. all of those issues are social determinant issues. I'm not the best person to deal with those. You're opening that clinic tomorrow. And it shows you the power that data can have right. when presented in the right way, when it's trusted to get people to move to um, different ways of delivering care. How have you built that trust? Because I feel like that is the, the anything that targets providers of any stripe. And I think it's providers, not just in provider organizations, but providers that live in the pockets of all the other areas. It's a very uh, rigorous group. Uh, it can be tough for uptake. Once you get them using something, it's really hard to get them to stop. Um, but like getting there is the barrier and trust is the the word. So um, and, and I'd love to dovetail this a bit into the product itself or the product suite itself and that evolution. Like how have you, how has trust come in from the very beginning? Because you have sort of a chicken and egg problem, I'm sure at the beginning stages of this, where you need folks using it and trusting it, but you need them to build up that relationship with it to get them to continue to use it. So like, how do you start the flywheel basically for you all? Uh, I love that we've landed here. Uh, just think about it. What's essential for a payment model to work? Trust. What's essential, uh, you know, to transform something and ask people to change their mindsets and the way they behave? Trust that where they're going to is going to be a better place. And uh, with clinicians, even more so because we've all been trained to... Um, you know, be conservative when doing new things, right? So from the get-go, when we started Clarify, we said, if there's one thing we have to do, we have to fix this issue of my patients are different. And before you prove to me that you've accounted for that, I'm not even going to listen. So that's the first gate. The second, and that was using baseball moneyball analytics, which interestingly, many physicians intuitively understand. You say, hey, we have come up with wins above replacement type metrics for your specialty. Now, it then requires going through in detail and proving that we have enough of their patient panel in there, et cetera. But once we've done it once, they generally come back and they say, hmm, interesting. And then we say, okay, do you accept that at least something is going to measure you? And then it's, oh, well, you know, reluctantly, yes. Okay, what do you want to look it to look and feel like? Well, it has to address, you know, my patients. It has to, it can't be black box. I need to be able to see the underlying data. And it ultimately has to be actionable because if, why would I look at data if I can't, change something and, and improve on an action. So interestingly, we often go to clinicians first. You would think that they would be the ones that wouldn't warm to what we have. But in fact, once they understand the way we do this, they'll often come into a room and say, if there's anything that's going to measure us, we want it to be clarified. Now, 
It's interesting, by the way, this word trust, if you think about the products that we sell to payers. So network design, care variation reporting to their provider partners, uh, and then you know the ability to contract in new ways and to uh, automate the adjudication of those um, contracts. There are many payers right now that are having uh, competitive RFP processes for platforms like this to help load in their value-based arrangements and automate the determination of who gets what. And typically, you know, most vendors will come in and say, ah, here's my technology, here's its features, et cetera. And uh, our view is what you need to do is come in and say, you know, what's the goal ultimately? Well, the goal is better actions in real time on the ground, which means changing mindsets and behaviors. So ultimately, the issue here, to your point, is trust. Right. So what you're wanting to affect is trust that begets a transformation. And so my advice to both payers and hospitals when looking at technology is to assess it through the lens of what will it do to trust? Will it work in the workflow? And does it ultimately generate a different result? John, I'm I'm loath to close this out because um, I feel like I could <laughs> go on like this for a while, but I want to I do want to close this out here um, for 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 time on um, this data story and where data healthcare data is in its let's call it the hype cycle now, where it's very much a buzzword, even if it does have these obvious real implications. And what I'd love is your advice to someone coming in at the point where you were coming into your journey, founding this company, like what would you say to that person? Maybe they're a clinician, maybe they're coming from the more of the business analytics side or a combination of both like yourself. Um, and they say to you, I want to leverage healthcare data to transform whatever aspect of this crazy system globally. What's the, what would you want to leave them with? What's your, what's your advice to that, that founder? So to any founder, what I would say is there are two things that you ignore at your own peril in healthcare. One is the workflow and one is how things get paid for. So make sure that whatever it is you're working on, that you are clear on the positive impact you're seeking to achieve for something that is an important business problem and that the way in which you do it will work in the workflow. So that's number one. And then number two is that there's somebody who cares enough about the improvement that you're generating that they will be willing to pay for it. Uh, Todd, my co-founder often says, wow, it's been seven years and I still marvel at the fact that healthcare does not behave like any other industry. <laughs> right. Whereas, because, you know, in other industries, if the competitor across the street has an innovation that makes them 0.5% more effective or efficient, everybody on the block decides that they have to implement it within a few months. And it still feels 
in healthcare that we're uh, in the land of it takes 17 years for, which was a real study done for right. 17 years to for a good innovation to scale its way through the system. So find a niche where there's a clear need and somebody's willing to pay. Dr. Jean Duran, CEO and co-founder of Clarify, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, terrific. Really enjoyed it and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.